You're listening to Grace and Fire, brought to you by Emerging Women. This is part two of my conversation with Elizabeth Gilbert on creating big magic. Liz is the author of 2006's runaway bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love, which has now sold more than 10 million copies worldwide, as well as her most recent novel, The Signature of All Things. Her forthcoming book, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear, will hit bookstands in September of 2015. In Big Magic, Liz asks the readers to embrace curiosity and let go of needless suffering. She shows how to tackle what we most love and how to face down what we most fear. She discusses the attitudes, approaches, and habits we need in order to live our most creative lives. Liz is also a featured presenter at the 2015 Emerging Women Live conference in October from the 8th to the 11th in San Francisco. Don't miss it. In today's episode, Liz and I spoke about originality versus authenticity, complaining and gratitude as an antidote, giving yourself permission to be creative, and finally, how Liz stays in touch with the divine. Here is part two of my conversation, Creating Big Magic, with one of my personal heroes, Elizabeth Gilbert. You make a distinction between originality and authenticity. Yeah. Help us understand more of that. Well, I think one of the things that I see blocking people from doing their work, and by doing their work, I mean the thing that they sort of quietly know they're supposed to be doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and we all have a different voice in here that that's like, I'm kind of supposed to be a poet. I'm kind of supposed to be, a, you know, whatever the thing is. Um, and it's one of the things that stops people, I think, is this fear that their work will not be original. Um, that somebody else has already done it, that somebody else has already done it better, that, that it's exactly like a million other things that people are doing, that it's going to be boring, that it's going to be banal. And I feel like, especially in a in a world where we want, you know, we want it tomorrow morning and we want 10 different ones and we want it to be innovative and we want it to be, you know, we, we're always looking for novelty. Um, I feel like that compulsion can become a real obstacle in, in people's lives. And when I see people really contorting themselves to try to create work that's original, it usually feels very forced and very um, annoying. <laughs> yeah. um, there's something often artificial about it. There's some often there's something inhumane about it. When you look at contemporary art that that's trying to do something nobody's ever done before, you know, something alienating about it. You just feel like, I can't love this. You know, um, when you look at a building that somebody's trying to create, that's like not, no building anybody's ever made. Every once in a while, somebody will make something brand new that you can love, but it's hard because normally you just, all you feel is the anxiety of the creator to try to distinguish herself from anything that's come before. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. I'm part of a craft that's been around for a really long time. People have been, telling stories for a really long time. And there are some tropes and sort of patterns and rhythms in storytelling that have evolved, that have evolved because they work. Yeah. You know, like um, there's storylines that work. There's, there are tropes and 
rhythms and patterns that show up again and again in creative products all over the world because we like them. We like symmetry. We like we like the escalation of a narrative. We like man versus nature. There's stories that, you know, the reason everybody loves Game of Thrones is because it's it's these ancient storylines that we instinctively are called to and, and that we enjoy, you know. Um, so what I always say to people is forget about trying to be original. Just be authentic because authenticity is something that I really value. And like I just read, a neighbor of mine wrote a memoir. And you know how people, there's that adage that everybody has a story, you know, yes. um, and that's true to a certain extent. And many times it's a similar story, you know, and this woman, without revealing too much information, has a story that is a kind of a story. It's a, she went through some horrible things in her first marriage that are awful and despicable and degrading that a lot of people go through. And it's a story we've heard before. You know, yeah. um, I have never heard it told the way she just told it. She wrote this book and because of the authenticity of her voice, yeah. it's a story I've heard a thousand times. I'm crying on every page while I'm reading this because I haven't heard it from her, you know, and she has a spin on it. It's not trying to undo form or change the world. She's just so authentic in her voice that it's killing me to read this beautiful thing, you know? So that's what I'm interested in. You know, don't just, just bring your fullest particular humanity to whatever it is that you're doing and it will feel original. Yeah. I feel like that's one of the things that stops people from really stepping big into their creative expression because they feel like it's been done and that, Um, And you have a lot here on perfectionism, and maybe this is a good segue, but that pressure to be unique, where somehow we don't accept our own uniqueness, or uh, it's like ironic, like we're all unique, and yet we're not unique enough, but it stops people. It stops people. Yeah. Look, I could have never written Eat, Pray, Love so easily by saying spiritual memoir of a woman looking for herself after a breakup. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, wow, groundbreaking. Right? (laughs) Been there, done that. Good Lord. That is an entire section of Barnes & Noble, you know? Um, And, but guess what? Like, I hadn't told it in my voice. It wasn't my, it wasn't what I did that made people. It was my voice because it was like a, a voice people didn't know yet. And they were like, Oh, I like that. I like the way she's doing this, you know? Um, but well, all I'm doing, look, there's nothing original about going to India on a spiritual journey for God's sake. Right. Like Herodotus talks 3000, 2000 years ago about people going to India on spiritual journeys. This is what people do. It's a very common destination and it's a very common wish to try to find a sage who will help you along your way. There was nothing original about what I was doing. There's nothing original about going to Italy to eat beautiful food. <laughs> you know, people were doing that for a really long time. So my book was not original at all, but it was authentic. Yeah. And so when people say like, hey, I want to do this, but somebody's already done it. I'm like, you haven't done it. <laughs> you haven't done it. And what if people just stopped making things because somebody asked, somebody already wrote a, a love song. You know, I want to write a love song. What, what can I possibly, we don't need any more of those. Of course we need more of those. Yeah, I mean, I can't get enough of people speaking <laughs> authentically about their lives. 
None of us just like can't get enough, you know? So there's way more opportunity when we're in the authentic zone than if we're struggling for originality, for sure. And struggling for authenticity, I feel like is a journey I'll go on with you. You know what I mean? Watching you struggle for originality is a journey I'm not very interested in taking with you, you know? But if I see you as a creator trying to find, or as even just as a human being, as a person, when I watch my friends trying to find their authenticity, that's one of the most beautiful journeys you can ever be part of. Watching someone try to find their originality is like hanging out with a bunch of high school drama students. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, today I'm going to wear my hair this way. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> and we all go through that and something lovely and endearing about that, but it, it's not very deep, you know? Um, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't go very deep. Yeah. Like, I want to know who you are. Really, really, really. And I want to watch you as you try to figure out who you are, which is beautiful, beautiful, exquisite mm. adventure. Put that. Yeah, that's beautiful. You have these, like, tricks in your book, which I love. You call them tricks. And and there's so there's one here. I have, you say, stop complaining. <laughs> I have a sign. <laughs> I have a sign. This is like a small thing. And then I have, an, I have a deeper question after this. But this is pretty deep for me. I have a sign up on my office, like bulletin board here that says, go 24 hours without complaining, not even once. Then wow. Watch, then watch how your life starts changing. Wow. Yay. What a challenge. But I'm on day nine, Liz. And I have wow. yet to go. To, well, I have yet to go. I can't go the 24 hours. I have well, not sorry, made it. You're getting, um, like, look, if you're going 20 minutes, <laughs> I'm just like, I, I have yet to make the 24 hour thing. So I'm curious because then I, I talked to, I know, right. I talked to one of my friends and they're like, I never hear you complain. I'm like, really? So I guess I have a question. Uh-huh. What do you mean by complaining? What constitutes complaining? Because well, this I is want, really good because yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Well, I was going to say, I want to be able, like, if something's hard for me, you know, I do have a tendency to just be like, everything's awesome, right? Because I'm a, hey, you know, right. I mean, That's not authentic, right? It's well, so, again, yeah. You know, Aristotle always said that the greatest virtue, the king of all virtues, is discernment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like in the example that he gave was, there is not a single culture in the world that does not honor courage. Um, but even how to use your courage is a discernment, right? Because on one, it's like he, he always thought of the virtues as like this pinnacle peak with cliffs on either side. So on one side of, of, of the, the virtue of courage, you can fall too far into recklessness and foolhardiness. And then as we discussed, you're just a jerk. And then the other side is cowardliness, which no one admires, right? But it's mm-hmm. a thin line sometimes. And it's, a, and it's a thin line. Like I'll give an example for you on complaining. This is one, just what I'm talking about is a kind of complaining that I've been working on, which is gossiping. Mm-hmm. So I know that I don't want to be a gossiping person. So I'm trying to be conscious about that. And I'm trying to figure out where is that line between I want to share something with a friend that's important for me to talk about that involves another person. Um, Now, when does it become gossip, right? Like when does it tilt over to something toxic? Because gossip is toxic. Sharing is healing, right? Mm -hmm. So, so there's that little tiny thin ridge that we have to walk, you know, um, sharing your, your struggle is, with your friends is beautiful. Complaining is like obnoxious and detrimental. <laughs> Where's right. the line? And the only thing I can say is, and I, maybe we can cross apply this from gossip over to complaining. I know it when I cross it. <laughs> ah. 
I know it when I cross it oh, because yeah. I know that like somebody hurt me by something that they said and it feels really hard and I want to talk to my dear friend about it and it's really nourishing to hear her voice and I can feel the moment when the healing is done and now I've just moved on to just griping about what a horrible person that human being was for <laughs> my feelings. Right. Right. And and it's like something happens where like the water quality just changes. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, like the, the pollen count in the air just goes up. Something happens where you're like, oh, we're, oh, this is poisonous now. Like 10 minutes ago, this was really nourishing. And now... I've had too much to drink. Like, it's a little bit like that, too. Like, right. oh, the first glass of wine was really nice. Now we're on our second bottle of wine. Maybe that's not really celebratory. Maybe now I'm just getting drunk, you know? And right. so, I, you know, I feel like when I say stop complaining, what I mean is the toxicity of complaining. Um, what I don't mean is to say to somebody who you love and trust, I'm having a hard time. <laughs> um, what I mean is, you hear it in your voice. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of a different tone of voice. Complaining is 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 graceless, and it's and it's always based in ingratitude. You know, um, whereas you can share something with somebody and say, like my friend, I have a friend who's great at this. Like she can just say, "Listen, I love my life, and I'm so grateful for every breath that I take, and I'm so happy to be in this place that I'm in right now." But my back really hurts. <laughs> And yeah. I feel like that's how you share without, that's how you make known that like, I'm still aware that I'm lucky, you know, but I'm like, I wish my back didn't hurt today, you know, but, but the complaining that you hear from the creative classes, from, from professional creative people gets to me because, um, you know, first of all, it, it's, it's like you chose this, <laughs> you know, yeah. you it's not the world's fault that you wanted to be an artist. You chose this and and you chose it with an open heart as an adult. Um, and you know, it's a weird path. You could have gone to dental school and you could have a nice job. So you can still go to dental school and have a nice job. You don't have to be doing this. So when I hear people who are creative people just kind of griping about every aspect of it, I just think, you know, you're, you're negating your own power. You're forgetting your own agency. You, you wanted to do this thing. Um, secondly, I think you're scaring away inspiration because inspiration, like all of us, likes to be loved. And, and when it hears you just talking about what a drag it is, yeah. I feel like it just goes and finds a more receptive, more grateful human being to work with. Yeah. I think it's true of all, you know, I see it a lot, you know, as someone who's in a startup and I talk to a lot of other startup entrepreneurs and there is a lot of gratitude and I feel like, there's, uh, you know, it's the reminder that, that we're, we've made these choices, you know, right. and what's the alternative? Uh, I think once you start thinking of the alternative, a life without art in your life, you know, go get that J-O-B, right. right? Then I think that's a good way to just to like bring it back to real and feeling that gratitude and stop complaining. And, but that's, it's such an important point. And I love how you said, I, as soon as you said gratitude, I'm like, that's the key. Like as right. long as I feel it usually that, is. <laughs> well, that's the key because if I can say something and have gratitude as I'm saying it, then that yeah. edge goes away. That edge. Well, or that even negativity. like I'm grateful. I'm grateful to have you as a friend who I can call when I don't feel very good. 
you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, even within there, there's gratitude. But, 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 you know, when it's taken the turn, you feel it. You just, you know, it's like you've eaten too much candy. Right, right, right. <laughs> just like, uh, I think I'm done. Yeah. You know, and I, I have some friends and we'll hold each other to that. We'll be like, I think we just crossed, I think we're done. I think this is turning poisonous, right? Like, right. we done? Okay, we're, we're good. <laughs> we got it off our chest. You want to talk about something better now? <laughs> right. Okay. So a couple of other things that I just want to make sure we touch on, because there's so much in this book, it could, you know, go on and on. But you have a whole section on permission. And mm. um, I just, I want to hear more about that, because this is something that I know Brene Brown talks about as well. And it's kind of elusive permission, giving yourself permission and for me, it is. That's been my experience. So I'd love to hear what you mean about that and how that relates to the creative process. Well, the best the, the best articulation of creative permission that I've ever heard comes from the wonderful British poet David White, who says that what you have to embody if you're going to dare to create anything is, is what he calls the arrogance of belonging. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of entitlement, but it's a very different sort of entitlement from the kind of entitlement that we all object to with a thousand selfies on, on social media <laughs> or somebody cutting, you know, cutting into traffic or just behaving like the world belongs to them and to them alone. Right? Sure. Like that's not a kind of entitlement that anybody admires. What, what, what the entitlement that goes along with the arrogance of belonging means is, is this deep soul entitlement that says, I am a product of creation. Creation is in play right now. The story of this universe is unfolding around us every single moment of the day, and I'm part of that story. And as somebody who is, a, is both a product of creation and a participant in creation, I have the right to also shape creation, right? Because we're all participants in creation, whether we feel like it or not. Every decision that we make, you know, alters the universe a little bit, right? So we're, we're constantly in that narrative of whatever is the story is, the strange, strange, strange story that humans are participating in, in, in the shaping of this universe. We are all from there. We're all doing it, whether we're conscious of it or not. And so I think making art is just taking that consciousness to the next level mm. and saying, I want to deliberately alter the story of creation by changing or shaping or building or fixing or undoing something, you know, putting my mark on it. And it's a really hard permission to give yourself because it it combats against that sort of horrible, deep, demonic voice within us that says, who the hell do you think you are? Um, You know, what makes you think that you have any right to contribute anything whatsoever to the ongoing story of culture or creation and the answer which i will answer when that voice comes up because it does i have that part of my family as well i have that voice living within me um sort of savage homicidal uncle in the basement (laughs) (laughs) you know who the hell do you who do you tell these like really really evil part of me and we all have it who the hell do you think you are and i speak to it the way Hostage negotiators speak to sociopaths. I just very calmly say, I'll tell you who I am. I'm a child of God, just like everyone else. And as such, I am a product of creation. I'm a participant in creation. And now I'm using my belonging within that to shape creation. That's what I am. That's who I am. Who are you? You know? Mm-hmm. And it's a really hard thing for women to do because so much of women's history is about not being allowed to do that. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, like just systematically and governmentally and within family and within neighborhoods and villages and cultures, just being, you know, every message that comes says, um, you, you're actually not a participant of this. You are a tool to be used by the ones who are actually shaping mm-hmm. the world. Um, you know, you're just here for their uses to, to procreate or to bring pleasure or to provide nourishment. That's what you're here for. Um, and all those things are creative acts when done in a different way. But when they're done under tyranny, they're not. And so much of women's history is about the tyranny of just not being allowed to participate in creation. Um, it's so funny, the Old Testament, there's parts of the Old Testament that make me laugh so hard because so much of it is this very angry Jehovah coming and saying to these men, these women, do, they do not create life. I created life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I did it. I had dust and I had a ribbon. I didn't. Women didn't do it. It doesn't come from women's bodies. It comes from a male force, like just trying to take creation away from from women. And so I, I hope that one of the things that this book will do, because a lot of my readers are women, is to give that permission back to them. Mm-hmm. You you're, you are like the original creators, you know, Um you are absolutely entitled to be part of this evolving universe. What do you want to say? What do you want to make? What do you want to change? What do you want to fix? What do you want to grow, build, knit, paint, tell, sing, dance? You, you can at any moment just by cashing in that permission slip. Mm. Yeah, and I love how you really, at the end of your book, you have all these sections. Your last section is divinity. And, you know, to really trust that that's actually true, right? And that um, right. is another way of giving yourself permission. And how do you yeah. how do you stay in touch with that? Through my work, to be honest. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I wish I could say that I have a beautiful meditation practice or a beautiful yoga practice or that I have a ritualized prayer practice. Um, I have never really been able to to bring that into my life in a super disciplined, daily nourishing way in a way that a lot of other people are able to do. Um, I think part of that is because I already do that um, every day when I'm showing up at my writing desk at seven o'clock in the morning, that's a devotional act for me. Mm-hmm. And um, and staying in touch with the that beautiful, I mean, this is the essence of the human relationship that the divine holding on in one hand, the part of me that is, sort of out of control um, and just being swept along by forces much larger than me with the other part of me who has free will and can make changes and make decisions and shape things, you know, trying to kind of keep that sane and keep Mm -hmm. that as balanced as I can and keep both of those realities in mind. Writing does that for me. And, And I also think that honoring your vocation is a divine act. Um, you know, when I talk about that talent, that, that bag of silver, that gift from the universe that you've been given, that's a present, you know, mm-hmm. you're given that for free. And, and the only way to really prayerfully express your gratitude and marvel and delight and honor that is to use it, <laughs> you know, um, to use it because it's like, I, I don't know why you gave this to me, but I assume it's because you wanted me to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this will be my prayerful act. And, and I do that with this really heightened sense of divinity and worship that I've always felt. I mean, when I was, I write about it in the book when I was 16 years old, I took vows to the universe to become a writer. And those vows felt like holy vows to me. And I've, 
I've honored them my my entire life because I don't really see the separation there between the arts and and the divine. Mm. I'm so glad you took the vow. Me all, too. We're all benefiting. <laughs> I would have such a boring life. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Liz, for sharing all this, and um, we're really looking forward to seeing you in October in SF. Thank you. I can't wait. Great. And thanks for spreading the magic. Thank you for spreading it. As always, um, it's going to be a blast. We're going to have a wonderful time. We are totally going to tear it up. <laughs> it's going to be mad. Okay. We're going to wreck the joint. Oh, yeah. It's roof's, com- <laughs> roof's coming off, baby. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Take care, Liz. Thank you, honey. Bye. Bye.